Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Does hard work pay off? Do workers enjoy the fruits of their labor? Can a child living in poverty grow up to be financially successful? These are the questions Dr. Michael R. String, Director of Economic Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, answers in his new book, The American Dream is Not Dead, But Populism Could Kill It. Populists on both sides of the political aisle routinely announce that the American dream is dead. According to them, the game has been rigged by elites. Workers can't get ahead. Wages have been stagnant for decades. And the middle class is dying. This rhetoric is dangerous and wrong. Dr. Strain shows that on measures of economic opportunity and quality of life, there has never been a better time to be alive in America. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. I'm joined today by Dr. Michael Strain, who is the Director of Economic Policy Studies and the Arthur F. Burns Scholar in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute, where he oversees the Institute's work on economic policy, financial markets, international trade and finance, tax and budget policy, welfare economics, healthcare policy, and related areas. Dr. Strain's latest book, The American Dream is Not Dead, But Populism Could Kill It, was published by Templeton Press in February of 2020. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today on Acton Line. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here. So, Michael, as I've every time I ask this, I've noted I've shamelessly stolen this opening question to authors from our uh, mutual friend Jonah Goldberg. Um, what is your book about? <laughs> uh, yes, that sounds like Jonah. You know, my book is um, is an attempt to zoom out to the thirty thousand foot level and to assess. Um, the kind of economic component of the American dream uh, to to answer some you know very basic questions: Are wages uh, stagnant or not? Are living standards improving or not? Is America an upwardly mobile society or not? Um, is uh, the middle of the labor market um, uh, collapsing? Or not, uh, and um, you know, I try to, I unapologetically try to answer those questions uh, uh, again at the thirty thousand foot level, uh, and to look at some of the the kind of broader trends. You know, I think that we have been uh, living through and many years now of of, of populist frustration, and um, many of the of the uh, reasons for that frustration are, are completely legitimate. Um, but I worry that the national conversation about economic outcomes, about upward mobility, about whether hard work pays off, about whether the game is rigged against typical workers and typical households, I worry that that conversation um, has focused excessively on the problems that Americans face 
uh, and the problems that specific groups of Americans face uh, and uh, has paid short shrift to what most people experience. Um, and so I try and to connect that analysis to the, the national narrative about these issues coming from both the populist left and the populist right. And my conclusions are that the populist narrative is, is factually wrong. It's, it's empirically demonstrably incorrect. Um, and more than that, that the populist narrative is dangerous um, because you know if you tell people that hard work doesn't pay off, if you tell people that their wages have been stagnant for decades, if you tell people um, that the game is rigged against them, well, precisely because those things aren't true, it matters what people believe. If people start to become convinced that that narrative is right, then they're going to put in less effort. They're going to they're going to aspire to less, um, and all of a sudden their wages aren't going to grow, and all of a sudden they're not going to be upwardly mobile. And so I'm worried about this populist narrative actually creating the problem that it incorrectly argues exists. Uh, and so that's kind of what I what I try to what I try to do in the book. What is the American dream? How do you define it? Um, so it's a good question. You know, the the, the American dream. Uh, is a is a fluid concept that uh, means different things to different people, and that um, and that uh, and that changes over time. You know, I think I think that that some common components of the American dream are the freedom to choose how to live your own life, um, to have a good life, you know, to have a good family life, to have meaningful work, to have a comfortable retirement, to uh, to live in a um, uh, in the midst of a strong community. Homeownership has always been a big component of the American dream. And, uh, you know, I don't want to, I'm not trying to, to, you know, shortchange any of any of those important issues. Um, but what I try to focus on in the book uh, is the economic component of the American dream. Um, you know, and, and I think that, that no matter, you know, who, who you talk to and, and no matter what period of time you're, you're considering, a key part of the American dream is, is really based on you know, economic success and upward mobility kind of loosely defined. Um, and so, you know, some specific questions. Are my kids going to be better off than I am? Uh, am I going to do better this year than I did last year? Does hard work pay off? Do workers enjoy the fruits of their labor? Uh, can a poor kid grow up to be a billionaire? Can a poor kid grow up to be, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to reach the top? Um, you know, those are the questions that I that I seek to answer in 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 the book. So uh, lay out the case for us, Michael. What is the actual condition of some of those uh, metrics that you were examining about wages? You know, we hear that wages are stagnating. We hear people aren't upwardly mobile. What is the actual reality according to your research? Well, the the, the actual reality is is quite different than that. So if you take, for example, the wages of uh, uh, typical workers, right? The wages of uh, workers in the service sector who aren't managers, the wages of uh, production workers in manufacturing, the wages of construction workers in construction. You know, you can think of this group as, as typical workers, as workers, not managers. Um, they constitute about 80% of the workforce. Uh, if you look at their wages, what you see is that over the last three decades, uh, their wages have increased by about a third. Um, that is not spectacular. That's less than 
uh, wage increases for the top one percent. But that is a that is not stagnant. Uh, a one third increase in in purchasing power, a one third increase in inflation adjusted average wages uh, over the last three decades, you know, really does reflect um, a substantial increase in uh, in uh, consumption ability in in uh, in purchasing power uh, in 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 wage income. You know, this stands in stark contrast to the rhetoric you hear. Uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren, the rich get richer while everyone else falls behind. Um, Bernie Sanders, I quote in the book, for many, the American dream has become a nightmare. Uh, Josh Hawley, I quote in the book, uh, for 70 percent of Americans, they haven't seen a real wage increase in 30 years. You know, I just I just think that, that those claims are just are just demonstrably false. You know, to, to take one more upward mobility, um, what I find is that if you look at uh, people who are in their 40s today and you compare their income uh, to the income that their parents had when their parents were in their 40s, uh, what you find is that uh, about three quarters have higher household income than their parents had. If you look at people who are in their 40s today who were raised in the bottom 20%, 86% have higher household incomes than their parents had when their parents were of comparable age. Uh, So would it be great if that were 100%? Absolutely. But if nine out of 10 people who were raised in the bottom and seven out of 10 people overall uh, grow up to have a higher household income than their parents, that says to me that America is still upwardly mobile. Uh, certainly not that America has ossified into a class-based society. Um, and so those are, you know, those are those those are those are a couple of the facts. And I, I'd be happy to go through uh, some more if you'd like. But I, I want to be cognizant not to filibuster. Sure. So the uh, on the wages question, are you just looking at wages there, or does that include? Of the whole picture of compensation, because so much is wrapped up in benefits that are not direct paid wages. Um, so, does it change the analysis of that at all if you include those benefits, or, or is what you're talking about include them already? So, the numbers I was I was talking about uh, are are just wages. Um, if you if you want to look uh, at benefits, um, and if you want to look at you know, if you want to account for taxes and account for government transfers, you know, then what you see is that median household income from 1990 to 2016, 2016 is the uh, uh, most recent year uh, was available for that comprehensive income measure. So if you look over those roughly three decade period beginning in 1990 and you, and you try to take into account all the benefits, take into account taxes, take into account transfers, then you see that that median household income has increased by 44%. Uh, If you want to look at households in the bottom 20%, their income has gone up by two-thirds, by 66%. And so, uh, you know, what what I find and what I try to show in the book is that really, regardless of your measure of income, your measure of wages, uh, you know, you you, you still see this substantial growth. Again, you know, it's not spectacular. It's less than the top 1%. We shouldn't be satisfied. We should be aggressively pursuing public policies that will lead to faster wage growth and faster income growth. You know, no question about it. Um, but 
Is this stagnant? I think the answer to that is clearly no. So we've talked about uh, wages. We talked about upward mobility. Um, you said you were uh, being cautious not to filibuster. I'll, I'll go ahead and let you filibuster for a bit because I want to get a broader picture of this. Um, what are some of the other key metrics that you think indicate that the economic picture is not nearly as dire as populists on uh, both sides of the aisle wish to paint it? Well, I, 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 try to, I try to go into some of these questions. And so I, you know, I, I try and present evidence on the relationship between productivity and, and compensation. Um, and you know, I argue that the evidence really does suggest that, um, that when productivity goes up, the you know, average wages go up. Uh, when productivity goes down, average wages go down. And you know, that, I think, you know, really does um, suggest that the populist narrative that the game is rigged is, is just, it's just false. It's just, it's just at odds with the facts. Um, uh, you know, you know, can a poor kid grow up to be a billionaire? I, I, I look at people who are adults today in their, in their forties today and who were raised in the bottom, in the bottom 20%. I find that seven out of every 100 people who were raised in the bottom 20% have made it to the top 20% as adults. Um, you know, to me, that that suggests that you really can rise uh, and, that, and that America is not this kind of, you know, ossified, stagnant, uh, class-based society that, 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 that uh, the populist narrative suggests. So that maybe that's rags to riches. What about rags to comfort? Um, well, you know, there, uh, the, picture is, the picture, I think, is, is even stronger. Um, where, you know, roughly 37 out of every 100 people who are raised in the bottom 20% make it into the top, uh, the top 60%. And, and so again, you know, are my kids going to do better than me? You know, odds are they will. Um, and, you know, actually, if you were raised in, in, in the bottom 20%, the, the odds are even stronger. Uh, the odds are even stronger that they will. Um, I, I take a look at the middle of the labor market in the book, um, and I try to uh, assess what's happening. You know, that's just been such an important um, uh, phenomenon. There's no question that, um, that the kinds of, you know, traditional middle wage, middle skill, middle class occupations that, that, that populists on both the left and the right uh, uh, like to like to highlight, you know, have been shrinking as a share of overall employment. If you if you group all uh, jobs as either low wage, middle wage, major, high wage jobs, and you and you go back to 1970, you see a pretty even even split. Um, about thirty uh, about thirty percent of workers were employed in a low wage occupation. About thirty percent of workers were employed in a high wage occupation. Uh, about 38% of workers were employed in a middle wage occupation. So the, the mode uh, was in the middle um, and, and you see a pretty even distribution. Uh, if you uh, fast forward to today, you see that um, only 23% of workers are employed in, uh, in the middle, in those middle, middle wage, middle skill occupations. So that, that's a drop of 15 percentage points. That's a big drop. And, you know, I think that has been, you know, really disruptive. And I think it's been, uh, you know, a, a kind of longer term, slower burning driver of uh, economic 
social and, and political uh, change. But 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 I but I think that that you know this is what happens in uh, a dynamic market economy, and you know there's the phrase creative destruction. You know the the populist narrative focuses uh, exclusively on the destruction component of creative destruction, but there's a there's a creative component as well. Um, and so what I try to do in the book is I try and I try and look at look at the middle, and I say okay let's. You know, let's separate kind of old middle, traditional middle, uh, you know, uh, iconic middle uh, from newer middle occupations. And uh, you know, so what's in the old middle? Manufacturing jobs, construction jobs, you know, extraction jobs, clerical jobs, you know, those sorts of jobs. Um, what's in what's in the new middle? Uh, healthcare support jobs, transportation jobs, education and training jobs. You know, sure enough, I find that over the last two decades, there's been a significant decrease in employment in those old middle. Uh, employment's fallen from 10.5% to 8.5%. That's a big drop. But employment in the new middle has actually grown faster than employment in the old middle shrink. So employment in the new middle has risen from about 10% of all workers to about uh, 12.5% of all workers. And the fastest growing uh, occupations in the new middle are sales reps, truck drivers, uh, personal service worker managers, heating and air conditioning mechanics and installers, health technologists and technicians, social workers, counselors, AV techs, paralegals, actually chefs are included in that in that group. And, you know, these jobs require a little more education, a little more skill, a little more experience than the jobs in the old middle. And they require different kinds of skills. They require situational adaptability and, and, and you know, high social intelligence and customer service and interpersonal skills and, and some technical and administrative skills. But they're still middle paying, middle wage jobs don't require a bachelor's degree. And they've been growing. Uh, and so I think, you know, the populist answer is to you know, bemoan the fact that those kind of traditional middle-class jobs have been shrinking to try and use public policy to turn back the clock to get those jobs back. I think that's not going to work uh, just as a practical matter. And I think instead what we should be focusing on are saying, hey, look, you know, there are a whole bunch of occupations that are growing and these jobs can give workers the kind of middle-class life that um, that they expect. Uh, and the challenge for public policy isn't to turn back the clock and isn't to stop economic dynamism, which it can't do. The challenge for public policy is to figure out how to connect workers with those opportunities. Uh, and, and I hope that that, that uh, is, is how we can how we can push the conversation forward. So uh, you you uh, you told me I could filibuster and, and, and I did. I apologize. That's right. Well, we're now going to abolish the filibuster, so uh, that, that'll fix that problem from, from here on out. Um, no, you, you reminded me of a line that I heard, and I can't remember who from, about the 1950s, that the, um, uh, in, at least in our modern politics, that the, uh, the left wants to work in the 1950s and the right wants to live there. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So the, you mentioned that some of those jobs, that you, these are ones that don't require a bachelor's degree. Uh, how, for kind of the forward-looking uh, 
part of this. How concerned are you about those credentialing requirements and all that is wrapped up in them? That there are, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but my perception based on, on what I, I've read, there do seem to be a lot of, uh, a growing number of jobs that do require some kind of an undergraduate degree, that that undergraduate degree has replaced the high school diploma as, um, at least for a, a decent number of jobs is that minimum credentialing that someone needs to be able to to get in the door, get an interview, and get the possibility of getting it. We hear that coupled with uh, a lot of the rhetoric from you know uh, mostly from the populist left about the you know, crushing burden of student loan debt. Um, how concerned are you about those problems looking forward, both from the economic side? And here's where feel free to tell me that I'm just wrong about this, that there aren't uh, more, you know, it's not a concern that jobs are, are requiring that kind of credentialing or I'm overstating the case. And how concerned are you about the, I guess, the way people perceive that problem of college being such a focus, being so important, being emphasized and almost insisted upon to people that they take on uh, a lot of debt, because we do know that college tuition is is rising and continues to rise. I've got young children. You'd mentioned earlier, you've got young children. As we look at those possibilities, um, how concerned are you about that overall? Well, I'm, I'm very concerned about that. I mean, I'm, I'm very concerned about the, the perception. And I think that... Um, the, the college debt story requires some 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 nuance. You know, a lot of people go to college and take on debt, and that turns out to be a great investment. Um, you know, they they earn way more than they would have, and uh, the their their earnings you know allow them to to pay off that debt you know very comfortably. Um, and uh, in terms of the amount of money they earn over the course of their careers, it was a very smart decision to go to college. The problem with college debt uh, comes uh, when you don't graduate, um, and when you you know when you when you drop out after a year or two, or when you go to a two-year college, a community college, and maybe you graduate, but you're in kind of a, you know, a general studies program or something that's not particularly marketable. And that's a real, that's a real problem. Um, and, and so, you know, part of that, you know, tells me that, um, that what we really need to be doing again is we need to be uh, emphasizing that there are lots and lots of jobs that can give you a middle-class lifestyle where you will earn um, wages in the middle of the of the distribution. Uh, you know, half of half of wage earners will earn more than you. Half of wage earners will earn, will earn less than you. You're kind of right in the middle. Um, they don't require you to go to college. You know, they might require some post secondary uh, skills and training, but you don't need to go get a traditional four year college degree. And I feel like I feel like that is is de emphasized so much that I think a lot of young people don't even really think about that as a path. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I think that really um, uh, accrues to their, to their detriment. Uh, and so I think that's, that's an important, that's an important thing we need to change. Why do you think the populist narratives have been able to gain such traction with people that things are, uh, things are actually getting worse um, I, I, I recall a good amount of uh, polling data that I've reviewed over the years that it kind of encapsulates what I think is an interesting phenomenon, that a number of people that they think they are doing all right, but they think that a lot of others 
aren't. Um, so that they're, they don't think that their experiences are in any way universal. And, and the suggestion, based on the data that you've laid out in this conversation so far, seems to suggest that you know, it is a lot more broad, widespread than uh, they think that it is. But nonetheless, these kind of populist narratives seem to grab hold. I mean, I, I know that we can point to some clear examples of places where deindustrialization has you know, created incredible problems in Appalachia. You can read J.D. Vance's Hillbilly elegy. You can see the Trump phenomenon as uh, partly capturing that. You seem to suggest that you know, the, the economic picture overall is pretty good. Why is the populist message so saleable and so readily accepted by people in spite of the reality you lay out? Well, I, I, think, I think that the, the answer is... Um, you know, really, the the financial crisis of two thousand eight and and the Great Recession that um, that it caused. You know, a lot of a lot of the um, groundwork for this surge of populism had been had been laid over a period of decades. And you know, things like technological change, the ability to automate manufacturing jobs using robots, the ability to automate clerical jobs using software. Um, have had profound effects on the labor market uh, for the last half century at this point. Um, and these are slower burning, longer term kinds of kinds of trends. Um, and those those trends collided with the uh, with the Great Recession, which was which was just a just a, a gut punch um, to household net worth, but also to the labor market. You know, if you if you look at at what happened in the years following the Great Recession, what you see is that as late as 2014, five years after the recession officially ended, um, six years after it started, uh, what you see is that wages for the bottom half of workers were lower in 2014 than they were in 2007. Wages for the bottom 20% of workers were lower in 2015 than they were in 2007. So that's that's you know seven eight years where huge swaths of the country saw their wages declining, um, and that you know just seeds the ground for this kind of populist frustration. You know, particularly since people at the top were were doing relatively much 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 better. This is this is part of a pattern. You know, there's. There's a, a really interesting uh, paper published in 2016 um, where the uh, economists who wrote the paper looked at 800 elections in 20 advanced economies from the years 1870 to 2014. And what they find is that there's a consistent pattern. You have a financial crisis, leads to a deep recession, and you see a surge in populism, and the way that they the way that they measure populism is by the share of seats in the legislature that are held by populists. And then you know about ten years later, things start to normalize. Uh, is what they find. The United States fits that pattern. We had a financial crisis, uh, you know, as financial crises do, it caused a severe recession, surge of populism on both the right and the left. Uh, but uh, you know, I think I think that by uh, you know, 2018, 2019, about 10 years, uh, 10 years later, um, things were starting to normalize. And 
the Democratic Party nominated Joe Biden. It did not nominate um, Bernie Sanders, who's a populist. That did not nominate Elizabeth Warren, who's a populist. And then Joe Biden went on to defeat Donald Trump, who, um, uh, you know, of course, was also was also a, a populist. Now, you know, lots of other things were happening, too. Uh, but I think that, um, you know, what I what I would stand by is uh, is just the claim that that financial crises cause particularly severe recessions and the nature of those recessions uh, ha- has uh, led to a surge of populism in uh, countries in Europe and in the United States uh, over decades and decades and decades. And so, what we saw happen in the United States is is actually, you know, part part of a part of the broader pattern. I'm recalling, as I'd mentioned, uh, Jonah Goldberg early in this conversation, his uh, most recent book. Uh, or at least in the talks that he gave on, and he gave one at Acton University a couple of years ago, where he made this point that, as we understand capitalism, it has been this incredibly effective and efficient means of making us, you know, wealthier. You you have the hockey stick graph um, that's so remarkable to look at. It is just one big drawback, and that it doesn't feel that way, and facilitating that kind of seamless cooperation with each other. Um, I say that to ask somewhat what might be kind of a sister question to the one that I just asked, which is, you know, we are by, you know, all the standard of living that you've laid out, we're living incredibly wealthy lives. We live, you know, better than, you know, the wealthiest people of the 1910s, the 1920s without a doubt whatsoever. And yet it still seems like people aren't happy um, that there's, they're lacking something Uh, I, fully can see that that could come from a lot of places. I think we see it represented, interestingly enough, in the census data that came out and some of the work of uh, Lyman Stone, uh, also from AEI, about reproduction, uh, that people are having fewer children. That's generally correlated with people thinking that the future is going to be worse than they have it right now. Do you have any theories on you know why, despite the economic reality being as good as, as you lay it out, that people aren't happy? Well, the the economic uh, the the economic reality. Um, so again, I I, I want to go to the kind of thirty thousand foot level and look at the last yep. several decades uh, and and try to make some broad characterizations. Um, and what I find is a story of of substantial economic progress, but I don't find a story of uninterrupted economic progress. Um, and so. You know, as I as I mentioned about the years following the Great Recession, those were tough years for half the country, um, and uh, uh, you know, people weren't happy with their economic outcomes in you know 2010, 2011, 2012, and they shouldn't have been. Um, and so, you know, there are going to be you know there are periods of time where you know things things aren't getting better. Um, my point is just that if you you know focusing on the bad years. Without focusing on the good years, it gives you a distorted picture. Only focusing on the good years also gives you a distorted picture. So I try to focus on all of the years and I and draw conclusions about all the years. But certainly there are some bad years in there for for a whole lot of people. You know, I uh, uh, you know why aren't why aren't people happy? Um, I'm a I'm a Catholic, and so <laughs> you know, I guess being happy. Uh, you know, seems like a, a pretty high bar. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. You know, I think um, I think that that uh, we probably shouldn't expect um, economic outcomes to uh, to be 
the only thing that that really affects people's people's happiness and, and, and people's satisfaction uh, with their lives. You know, uh, having said that, I, you know, I don't, I don't think that um, that many people at all, you know, would actually trade places with somebody who was living in 1990 or 1980 or 1970 or, or, or even 1950. Uh, I, th- I, you know, I, th- I think a lot of, a lot of conservatives, you know, a lot, a lot of white male conservatives, you know, would like to have the social status in the fifties, but with the living standards they have today. Um, and, you know, that's, that's, that's not on offer. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's, I think it's very difficult to substantiate the claim that economic life hasn't gotten better over the past 50 years or even the past 20 or 30 years. Um, and so if, if people are, are getting, you know, progressively unhappier, which, which I'm not, I'm not convinced they are, but let's, let's assume that let's assume for the sake of argument that they are, you know, I don't think, I don't think we can point to declining economic outcomes as the reason. Um, you, you've mentioned the uh, financial crisis and the Great Recession a couple of times. And it brings to mind, um, I think, one of the things that helped foment a lot of the populist angst that came out of that, uh, which was the uh, certainly the perception, and I, I think there's a good case to it, of crony capitalism um, that was kind of exemplified by that, uh, that, you know, these financial firms, yes, you can point to the Lehman Brothers that was, you know, allowed to fail, but a lot of the others, of course, were bailed out. Um, What role do you think that the, both the perception and the reality of crony capitalism plays in this conversation? Oh, I think it plays a significant one. I mean, I think that, I think that people, you know, I think people saw that their outcomes weren't improving, their outcomes were uh, you know, maybe even getting worse. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that wasn't true at the top. Uh, and even worse than that, you know, they saw that, you know, the value of their home plummeted and they were upside down on their mortgage and, you know, you know, the government wasn't coming in to help them with that, but the government was, you know, propping up AIG or, or whatever. Uh, and I, you know, I think it's understandable that that led to, uh, that that led to, to, to significant frustration. Let's, uh, Let's go here real quick. So a lot of the criticism, um, one of the things that I think has certainly made living standards better as we examine the landscape is is free trade. Free trade certainly has come under a lot of attack recently, particularly vis-a-vis China. I'm curious what thoughts that you have on the role that uh, free trade has played in making the improvements in living standards that you're talking about possible. Um, and if you have any thoughts on, you know, the, the, what we're looking at in terms of the way that we'll possibly be interacting with China going forward, where, you know, the, we do seem to get a lot of imports from them and the, the relationship to me, in my opinion, looks like it is, um, destined to be more troubled than it was over the past couple decades. Yeah. So I think free trade has gotten really a bad, a bad rap. In all of this, um, you know, if you if you look, I think at you know what has driven uh, you know declines in in manufacturing employment, for example, you know trade trade has certainly played a role in that. But the 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 big reason for that has been technological advancement that that that, that has allowed the manufacturing sector to produce goods with fewer workers. Um, you know, robots, for example. And I think that that story has really 
been lost. And part of the reason it's been lost is, 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 you know, if you're a politician, you're trying to, to point, you know, uh, the blame for, for what's happened in manufacturing and the manufacturing towns. It's just a lot easier to, you know, blame China than to blame robots because it's harder to make an enemy out of them. You know, I think, I think that trade on the whole has been very, very good for the American economy. It's been very good for American households. It's been very good for the working class specifically. Um, trade um, certainly subjects the working class to competition from imports, uh, but trade also creates a whole bunch of opportunities for exports that wouldn't otherwise exist. And so you see, uh, you know, what you see is the is the businesses that are that are particularly vulnerable to uh, competition from uh, from imports have have suffered. What you don't ever hear about is that businesses that have been able to to ramp up exports due to international trade have have seen boom times. And uh, you know, on top of that, uh, for those kind of specific uh, uh, businesses and industries that 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 really are exposed to trade. You know, trade has lowered the price of consumer goods across the board, um, and trade has increased the quality and variety of consumer goods that that households have access to. Uh, and so, you know, I I don't think there's really much much argument that for the economy as a whole, trade has been good. And I think you know, I think there's also you know, at least in my mind, not much argument that for the working class and for uh, you know the the kinds of the kinds of groups that that you often hear about. You know, I think I think trade has been really good for them uh, as well. And so, you know, one of the you know one of the real casualties I think of this populist uh, populist moment we've been in for for a while now has been uh, has been attitudes toward toward free trade. And I think by by withdrawing from from the world, you know, by not joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, for example, by uh, attacking international institutions and weakening international alliances like President Trump did so often. I think populism is actually putting at risk, you know, one of the one of the most important foundations for for future prosperity. So I think th- I, th- I think it's quite serious. How concerned are you about the impact of a lot of the pandemic economic policy on the job market right now and going forward? I've seen a lot of stories of, you know, businesses that are looking to hire people. They're offering and some kinds of incentives just to get people to come in for interviews. Um, they're paying people to come in for interviews in some cases. Uh, that suggests to me that a lot of the relief – um, some of which I think the, of the relief, I think, was justified when the government decided to shut down large sectors of the economy. People lose their compensation. That direct relief makes sense. But continuing things like unemployment the way we are through September, what impacts do you think that's having on the job market right now, people's economic well-being right now? And, and wh- how concerned are you about that? Uh, I'm pretty concerned about it. I mean, I think right now there are you know, a variety of factors that are um, making it harder for businesses to find workers. You know, one of those factors is, is is a good factor, right? Which is that the economy is healing and, and things are getting back to normal. In, a, in, a, in, a, in an economy that's that's healthy um, and that's growing, you would expect for workers to have, I'm sorry, you would expect for businesses to have to compete harder 
for workers than, than they're used to. And so, you know, in some ways, you know, what's happening is, is good and healthy. Um, you know, part of the reason why it's hard to find workers for, for some businesses, at least according to what they're, what they're, what they're claiming, uh, is, um, that, uh, the pandemic really is still with us. Um, it's very hard for, uh, for mothers with kids at home to go back to work. Uh, you see a clear divergence between, women with kids in the house and women without kids in the house in terms of their workforce participation. Um, uh, you know, that gap opened up uh, last summer and, it, and, 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 and it's still there. You know, so I think there, I think that there are a number of things happening, but I, but I do, I do think that as the economy continues to grow and as the pandemic continues to fade, the, generosity of unemployment benefits is going to become uh, a bigger and bigger problem. And I expect this summer that uh, it's going to be causing real problems in, in the labor market. I think it's just, I think it's just uh, much too, much too generous. You know, if you, you know, if you, if you take the kind of typical state provided standard unemployment benefit, you're at, you're at about 350 bucks a week. President Biden's stimulus adds three hundred dollars to that. Now you're at six fifty a week. Six fifty a week is more than about half of workers are going to earn in the labor market. So about half of workers have a higher income from unemployment benefits than than they would from working. That is going to keep people on the unemployment rolls for longer. That's going to be bad for the economy as a whole because it's going to make it harder for the supply side of the economy to grow to keep up with surging demand. So it's going to add to inflationary pressures. That's going to be bad for businesses because because they're not going to have uh, you know an easy time finding the workers they need. And that's going to be bad for workers too because the longer uh, workers spend um, unemployed, the harder it is for for them. To to get back into the into the job market um, and, uh, and and get back into jobs, and so you know, I think I think it's a I think it was a substantial policy error to to put this uh, three hundred dollar a week supplement in place through September. Michael, let's conclude our conversation uh, here with this question. You had mentioned earlier after you laid out the case for um, the progress that has been made over previous years that there are public policy options that you think should be pursued um, in order to uh, continue that kind of growth and perhaps amplify that kind of growth into the future. We're having this conversation the day after President Biden gave his address to the nation, which included a whole lot of ideas. Um, I want to ask you for what you think a few of those public policy proposals would be, uh, hopefully uh, less lengthy and with fewer applause interruptions than uh, President Biden had uh, had last night. Oh, well, I'm happy to do that. I mean, I, you know, so I think, I think the first thing to do is um, to try and do things to to support employment. Uh, earning subsidies like the earned income tax credit, I think, are terrific ways to pull people uh, out of poverty, to pull children out of poverty, and also to get people into 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 jobs. Um, and so that's a way I think we can expand opportunity. Uh, you know, back to what we were talking about earlier, we have to find better ways to to build skills um, that that don't involve a traditional four year degree. And I think there have been some real there's been some real progress in, in uh, work-based learning models like apprenticeships, you know, that have really been shown 
to be able to, to increase workers' wages, but but that aren't aren't a traditional four-year degree. So I'd love to see some more of that. You know, there are a lot of barriers in the labor market to upward mobility um, that we need to tear down. I'm thinking of regulations like occupational, like excessive occupational licenses. Uh, you know, the, those are just making it harder for people to, to climb the ladder. We need to get rid of those. There are there are safety net programs that track people in in really bad situations. Um, like the disability insurance program, for example. Uh, of course, we we should have a disability insurance program, and there are people who do become disabled and are unable to work, and we should we should make provision for that. But I think that program needs to be needs to be reformed so that it's 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 much more pro work for people who are able to to do work. On a, a more macro level, you know, I think we need to uh, to be uh, advancing economic liberalism. We need to. Uh, be uh, encouraging free trade, encouraging globalization, because that's going to lead to a more productive U.S. workforce. It's going to lead to higher wages for for workers. Um, We need to uh, support business investment. Um, You know, I think President Biden is wrong to want to to raise capital income taxes and to want to raise uh, corporate taxes. You know, that's 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 the last place we should be looking for. For revenue, we we need we need businesses to locate in the U.S. and invest in the U.S. because that's going to ultimately that's going to ultimately help workers. Um, and so there are you know, there are a whole bunch of, of you know micro and macro policies we can we can do to you know help make wages grow even faster and and, and to help make America even more upwardly mobile. But in order to do any of that, you know we need to have uh, the exact opposite attitude of populism. We need to be confident in the future, not fearful of the future. We need to be open to the world, not closing ourselves off, not building walls. In order to to get the policies right, we need to get our attitude about some of this stuff right. I hope that that's around the corner. Dr. Michael Strain is the Director of Economic Policy Studies and the Arthur F. Burns Scholar in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. His latest book, which we discussed today, The American Dream is Not Dead, But Populism Could Kill It, was published by Templeton Press in February of 2020. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today on Acton Line. Thanks for having me on. It was a great conversation. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actonline, I'm Gabriel Jaja.